Hello! Hello! Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Coel. And I'm Kenna. It's going really well. I went out and bought a coffee today, and I mm-hmm. haven't done that in a long time. Yeah. And it's just so much, nice, so much nicer when you get coffee made for you instead of having to make it. I started going to BlackRock recently, and they know my order now. I They're love like, BlackRock. They're like, just the usual. And I'm like, yes. The huge. The huge. Awesome. Oh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So we got a really great comment on our most recent Patreon episode. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Because it's your episode? Yes. Yeah. So this was in relation to our newest episode that you did, Lori Vallow Daybell. And our Patreon member Stephanie commented and said, I've been wanting to get into this case, but have been intimidated by all of its complexities. Thank you so much for the great research and breaking it down in an understandable way. Love you. Bye. Oh, that's so great. Thanks, Stephanie. Yeah. It's, it was hard because. Yeah. A lot of the research was very jumbled, and so, and I'm just, like, a linear person. It mm-hmm. has to go in uh, chronological order. Oh, for sure. Otherwise, I, I get lost. So, I love that people hear that, and they they know it. They're yeah, like, they appreciate okay, great. it. <laughs> it's nice to have your, really, like, your hard work appreciated, because it's such a big, almost, like, weight off your shoulders once you research this giant case, and then you spend two and a half hours recording, and then you're like, oh, okay, like, all of that work was a lot and then someone says how much like it, they enjoyed it and you're like yeah. oh, it was all worth it it was know? so worth it <laughs> yeah well i don't have anything else i just wanted to read that nice comment thanks stephanie for that anything else that you have no i don't think so do you want to give everyone our handles i like when you do it sure you can follow us everywhere on social media at diagnosing a killer with the exception of twitter that is at killer diagnosis we also have our patreon like we just said we released our tier two and three patreon only bonus episode recently and we have another one coming up pretty soon if you want to join either one of those tiers that also gives you access to completely ad-free episodes every time we post and our love and support (laughs) and thanks for on this on this (laughs) end we also have a, a paypal a venmo a cash app all at diagnosing a killer if you just want to help us monetize Denver a little bit more. Yeah. And then go ahead and get your tickets to the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival that is happening in Denver in July, the 12th through the 14th. We will be there and we cannot wait to meet you. Yes. Also, merch helps out with that as well. Whenever you purchase merch, that goes straight into the fund for us to be able to go to Denver. (sighs) Just love you guys. So excited about everything going on. Yeah. All right. I'm excited to hear what you have today. Today, we're going to be talking about Daniel Wozniak. Okay, I think I've heard the name, but it's not really coming to mind, the story. We shall see. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Content warning. This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault, gruesome murder, and PTSD. If this episode is not for you, we encourage you to check out another one of our episodes. Remember that your mental health comes first, and we love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Daniel Patrick Wozniak was born March 23rd in 1984 in Long Beach, California, to parents Daryl and Marianne Wozniak. He was the youngest of three, having two older brothers, one of which being Tim, who was the middle child and was 10 years older than Daniel. So he had like a pretty big gap between him and his older brothers. The family was raised in a Catholic household. 
and both of his parents worked, and the family seemed pretty well off. They usually took vacations, and the affluent family resided in a pretty big house. Most of the time, Daniel and his brothers would spend their afternoons with their grandparents, as both of their parents worked full-time. Dan seemed to have an early affinity for making people laugh, even at a young age. He was seemingly very outgoing and performative, and always loved to put a smile on people's faces. Sounds like a real Jim Carrey. (laughs) Yeah. He wasn't necessarily the coolest kid growing up, but he was able to make friends by being the goofy guy and even dabbled in magic tricks in order to entertain his peers. I know some people like that, like in high school. He was in the honor roll, and teachers and students alike seemed to get along well with Dan. He never caused any trouble all throughout his grade years, and in later years, Dan's eldest two brothers seemed to be quite satisfied with the family's success, and therefore they never really felt the need to venture out or go to college. They were just homebodies. Mm. Don't tell your kids they're perfect because they're never going to try to achieve anything more. (laughs) Never going to do anything. Yeah, they were really, they were just like, oh, this is stability enough. It's fine. (sighs) Dang. The pressure was then left to Dan to create something of a life for himself. That's, yeah. Right? Wouldn't you think (laughs) if you feel like, oh, okay, like my brothers aren't going to do shit. So I have to be the one to be the successful one. Yeah. And how much pressure that must be. Probably a lot. After graduating high school, Dan decided that he wanted to begin attending local theater at the Orange County Community Theater, and he decided to try out after visiting a few times. The theater. The theater. I'm a philanthropist. No, not a philanthropist. What is it? I don't know. A thespian. That's what it is. A philanthropist. I said that to Cliff the other day, too. I was like, you know, like a philanthropist. I mean, a thespian. (laughs) Those two words, like, are completely opposite. They are. (laughs) So, again, although it's not really his dream to be a major Hollywood actor, Dan found that acting came very naturally to him. He had even started mentoring young actors who did look towards being successful in Hollywood one day. Former castmates of his would describe Dan as outgoing and kind of the life of a party. The class clown. The class clown, (laughs) yes. His voice would carry, and he was not afraid to really go for it on stage. He kind of just was one of those people that enjoyed being kind of outlandish Mm, i'm not that person me neither like i do not want to be the center (laughs) of attention at all (laughs) he loved to be the center of attention here is where he met rachel buffett at the local theater the young starlet did have aspirations of becoming a famous actress and she was quite talented dan and rachel hit it off and were often casted as the major love interests in the local theater's plays They would quickly begin a romance of their own, and to everyone's shock, were engaged within just a short amount of time, and the two would move into a nice apartment complex in Costa Mesa. We always hear this, right? Mm -hmm. The two would quickly get married. The two would quickly marry. Or they'll quickly get engaged, or quickly have children, Or quickly get divorced. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The two planned on being married in a lavish wedding come that summer in 2010. This was only odd, since the two seemed like complete opposites. Rachel was a pretty reserved person and took her acting career very seriously and was almost rigid at times, where Dan seemed to be more comfortable on stage. Hmm. The couple were committed to the idea that they were eventually going to be full-time actors, so the two eventually stopped looking for other means of income. Oh gosh, that's not smart. (laughs) And while getting closer to the wedding, the two were officially struggling financially. Great. I wonder how people, like, this is just a personal thing for me, like, I don't think I could date 
someone that was an actor. Yeah. Because I would be, like, seething with jealousy if they had, like, any sort of romantic scene with any other character. Mm -hmm. But then also, you, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed, like, some characters, at least in, like a, like, a long series, or I've seen them in multiple things, and they're never intimate with, like, the opposite sex. It's just, like, it's almost like they signed a contract, like, okay, if I'm going to be an actress or an actor... I'm not going to do any romantic scenes with with another cast member. I'll be the funny person or I'll be the single friend or whatever, you know? Like, like for example, like, Melissa McCarthy, I feel like, has very minimum romantic scenes. And oh. when she does, it's usually with her actual husband. Her, yeah, you know what I, I mean? Like, mean. Yeah, so but, like... you get into that? I guess she just has to be Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder started dating after Edward Scissorhands. That's what I'm saying. Know? Like, they obviously felt that romantic connection because yeah. of their characters. Or like, Johnny and Amber Heard in The Rum Diaries. Or yeah. Johnny Depp and anyone, really. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Like, I couldn't watch, even if it's acting, mm -hmm. I couldn't watch that. And then I would be fearful that, like, oh, they have this chemistry, like, outside right. in the real world, you know? There's an episode of Friends where Joey is is it joey oh no it's chandler is dating an actress right and the actress has like these really steamy scenes with this with her co-actor co whatever you call it co-cast member and uh chandler gets really really jealous and joey's like don't worry about it like if there's heat then that means that there's tension but when there's no tension, you meet, like it means that they banged because they've already gotten it out that's right that's true yeah and so then it's like one like one I guess, like, the next time they go to a play and he goes to see Kathy, there's, like, no chemistry. And he's like, I know you're cheating on me, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I would never cheat on you or whatever. And he's like, I saw it up there. There was no sexual tension between you two. And she's like, oh, so now you're insulting my acting. Like, <laughs> it's really bad. <sighs> she ends up cheating on him anyways. <laughs> Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> From 1997. <sighs> anyways. On the verge of eviction, the couple would ask various friends and family for money. Most of these loans went to down payments for the wedding, however. Oh, my God. Photographers, music, catering, and the wedding was quickly approaching. And in just one week, the two would say their vows. How about, like, postpone the wedding until you can afford it? No. <laughs> it's got to be big. It's got to be lavish. It's yeah. got to be... He's got to be the successful That's true, yeah. Son. He wants to be the, the center. Jory, or Julie Kimbushi, was born on Valentine's Day 1987 to her parents, June and Masa. Julie started dancing at age five, and the Japanese-American was described as bubbly and goofy. She never met a stranger and would always quickly make friends wherever she went. Her parents said that they never worried about her getting into trouble, and she was well-liked by everyone around her. As silly as she was, she was always respectful of others, but especially to her parents. After high school, Julie began attending Orange Coast College and began studying fashion. In one of her classes, she met a man by the name of Sam Hur. Sam had served in the military and did a tour in Afghanistan. Sam actually volunteered to be at one of the toughest camps overseas. At any given time, there could be hours of combat. Oh my god. Sam was trained to keep the camp's various generators going, so even while in combat, he would have to run from generator to generator in order to keep them functional. That's like, it was terrifying. Like, the dangerous job. The dangerous camp, the dangerous job. Yeah. He had come back from service in order to gain an education in hopes to return to service and continue to climb the ranks. Sam was exceptionally close with his parents, especially his father, Steve. He was described as a great guy, and although he was a big guy, he was also described as a teddy bear. Aww. 
Friends and family always saw him laughing, that is, until he came back from service. Oh, no. Sam had begun to show signs of PTSD. Mm. His college roommate remembers Sam sometimes crying out in the night, saying he was stuck in foxholes. Oh, my God, that's terrifying. That is I'm actually, I'm actually working on a... Just side note, my final paper for one of my courses right now, and mm-hmm. the entire paper is about getting um, post-military vet, like veterans, mm-hmm. not post, but veterans, um, immediate access to mental health help yeah. right when they come back. Because a lot of the time, like, and I have like 16 different studies that I'm pulling from, but a lot of the time, like, the macho, like, mentality almost can prevent men specifically from coming back and, and seeking help because yeah. it's like, oh, like, I'm more tough than that. Like, it's kind of, like, not looked down on, but it's just not as frequent. Right. And that can affect their spouses, you know? They can start getting residual mental health, you know, symptoms if the original diagnosis or not diagnosis, you know, goes untreated. And it's just, yeah. it's a vicious cycle because it's like, yeah, they have things like the VA and they have things that are available, but there's not enough resources. Yeah. And a lot of people are going untreated and harming themselves or others. I can't imagine how it must be to go through this whole process of boot camp and then being assigned and, and you're taught kind of like mind over matter. Mm-hmm. Like you have to work for a greater good than more than just yourself and that the things that you're going through probably aren't as important as yeah. other things. And so when you come back and you're all of a sudden an individual again, it's got to be really hard to to feel like the need to take care of yourself. Of course. Like, it's hard to transition back into that role, yeah. for sure, role of society. And they actually say that, from what I've been reading, like, the number one problem of getting help is, like, getting back into the workplace yeah. and then getting back on your feet, essentially, like, financially. Yeah. And that can cause a lot of things to you know, come to the surface, like, mental health-wise. It is one of those things, it's like, it was a routine for so long, and then you come back and you have almost more free will, and it's like, what do I do with my time? Yeah, for sure. And again, I'm no, like, expert in it, but I absolutely believe that there could be more facilities and more, more, you know, funds Mm -hmm. pushed towards taking care of veterans when they get back. Like, how, how they, people give their lives and their, their mental health to the government and you come home and the government doesn't give you shit and it's yeah. kind of it's rough for sure again i'm no expert on it i would not know the numbers mm-hmm. but yeah now sam is somewhat adjusting to his life in orange coast college and it's here where he would meet julie the two shared a class together and quickly became friends they fed off each other's passion for knowledge and continuing education julie is the dancer yes okay They spent a lot of time around each other, but told friends and family that they were just friends, and it was completely platonic, which it was. Sam lived in a well-off apartment complex close to school, and this complex was known to be full of college kids. So lots of parties on the weekends and ragers, and oftentimes the groups would end up in the apartment pool. On one such occasion, Sam, Julie, and some friends were down in the pool when they met Sam's neighbors for the first time a couple by the name of Dan Wozniak and his fiancée, Rachel Buffett. Oh, no. Cool. Change the course of his life forever. Everyone seemed to get along, and Dan mentioned that the couple's financial troubles were getting to him. Sam talked of his military service, and when questioned by Dan about his own finances, Sam didn't hesitate to bring up the amount of money that he had been saving. Oh, no. <sighs> Fuck. The group would hang out into the night, but eventually everyone retires... On the night of May 21st, 2010, 
Julie had plans to meet up with her brother to discuss her brother's upcoming wedding over dinner. There, Julie's brother asked her to be part of his upcoming wedding, placing a tiara on Julie's head and almost crowning her for the occasion. Oh, that's cute. It's really cute. Sometime during the meal, Julie's phone began to blow up. It's Sam. Earlier in the day, Sam and Julie were texting back and forth as normal, being silly and even flirtatious at times. First, he states that he is helping his friend Dan Wozniak move some furniture. Quote, helping Dan, then headed to the folks for the weekend. End quote. But just a few hours later, while Julie is sitting down to dinner, the text began to become more frantic. Quote, can you come over tonight at midnight, alone? Very upset. Need to talk. I'm hurting with some bad family crap. I can't be alone. No sex. Julie reassures him, I'm here for you, like family. More texts come in. Can you come by? Please come over, but please don't tell anyone. Oh my god, it's not even him. Shut up. (laughs) The next morning, Julie's mom, June, noticed that her daughter's door was open. When she cracked the door even further, she called out to Julie, but with no response. Looking around the room, it was obvious that Julie had not come home the night before. Julie's mother, June, begins to call Julie's phone, but all of her calls would eventually go to voicemail. Sam's family had also grown concerned, as Sam was supposed to visit his parents for the weekend, Mm -hmm. as he mentioned in the text. And by Saturday, May 22nd, they still hadn't heard from him. Shit. Sam's father, Steve, began to call Sam's phone, but similar to Julie's mom, his phone seemed to be disconnected or go to voicemail. Steve, sensing that something was off, decides to drive to Sam's apartment in an effort to locate his son. Oh my god. When Steve arrives, the door is open. He enters his son's apartment to find that nothing seemed out of place until he gets to his son's bedroom. Oh my god, stop. That's so scary. There, Steve found a body lying on the ground, blood everywhere. He quickly realized that this body, however, was not the body of his son Sam, but of a woman. The woman was partially clothed, suggesting that she had been sexually assaulted. Steve quickly called 911 to report his findings. When police arrive, they find the woman's purse in the kitchen, confirming that the woman who was at the scene was Julie Kabushi. Okay, but, like, this makes no sense. Like, like I know you're going to get into it, but as far <laughs> as I can tell right now, it's, like, Dan, and he went to Sam's place to kill him for his money, so why would he, like, lure Julie there unless he had some secret fetish about her, or he knew that she would call the police if she realized that Sam's missing. And so he was like, I gotta get rid of her, too. But it's like, in my mind, someone doesn't just become a double murderer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, over money. Someone doesn't just become... I don't know. It's just it's just funky. I'm sure you'll tell everyone. <clears throat> we see it all the time. People, people become double murderers all the time. Quickly. <laughs> Quickly. Julie had been shot in the head, and she was still wearing the tiara that her brother had gifted her. Okay. That's really sad. That's really fucking sad. Oh, God, no. Okay, I'm okay. On the back of her shirt was written in, I think it was like Sharpie. It said, quote, all yours, fuck you, end quote. Sorry? Right? What does that fucking mean? I don't know. It's like Charlie Manson and like pig or like race war or whatever he was. Yeah. Whatever he was writing in blood on the walls. It seemed, like I said, this is so ominous. This is such a fucking like jump it's like you know like all of a sudden they're like homies in the hot tub and then now he's like this sadistic killer like it's weird 
Sam's car was missing, and so was his passport. Looking further into Sam's past revealed that maybe Sam was capable of hurting Julie. No. After all, he too had once been tried for murder. What? Do, do, do. If you want great tasting meals daily, but can't find the time to shop or even cook, we have the solution for you. Fresh Meal Plan is a convenient, easy way to create custom meals delivered right to your door. With hundreds of rotating meals each week, there's always something new to look forward to. Many of their meals are ready in three minutes or less, so you don't have to spend all night cooking. Just select your meals, heat, eat, and bon appetit. Click the link in our show notes today for an exclusive offer with Fresh Meal Plan and create the perfect menu for you. According to People vs. Romero, on January 15th, 2002, Victor Flores, aged 20, was found murdered in the streets of Santa Clarita. He was a part of the Brown Familia gang and was killed within the gang's own territory. That night, several of the gang members gathered in an apartment to discuss what had happened to their fallen member. Sam Hare was in the apartment as well, although he was not affiliated with the gang. During the discussion, it was determined that possibly one of Sam's own friends could have been involved in the slaying. Sam agreed to participate in luring this man, 19-year-old Byron Benito, into his car along with two other accomplices, and he drove them to a local trailer park. Sam also agreed to go along with a surprise carjacking, acting as if he was caught off guard as well by the random attack. What the fuck? When the young men arrived at the destination, the car was attacked, each man being pulled from the car. The gang of 15 to 20 violently beat, kicked, and stabbed Byron Benito for 15 minutes until he lay dead. Holy shit. The group, le- the group leaving his body behind. Police would soon apprehend all of those who were involved, and although 11 would only be officially taken to trial, only five were convicted of Byron's murder. Jesus. Six would be let go, completely free of charge, including Sam Hur. That's crazy. Fucking oh my it. gosh. I found one article that talked about this. Or not oh one God. article, but it's actually like the court documents. Yeah. It was the only thing I could find on it. That's wild. I was reading another piece that said, oh, he was previously tried for murder, but he was let go. And I was like, wait, what? we're just going to gloss over that <laughs> yeah. here? I don't think so. <laughs> Pepper that in there real quick. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he... And here's the thing is, in my opinion... Okay, and this sounds horrible, but in my opinion, I think he was there. He probably knew people that were there. He happened to be around when this conversation was going on. Mm -hmm. They suspect it's his friend, and they're like, you're going to lure him, and he's, what is he going to do? There's 14 to 16 other people in that house. He's going to be like, I'm not going to do that. They would have killed him right there. They would have killed him, and I, I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah. And so I. That's so awful, though. Like, imagine being in that situation. Yeah, you pick up your friend and drive him to his death. Or you get killed. Or you get killed for not doing it. Yeah. So. That's awful. It is awful. (sighs) So, was it so far fetched that Sam would also lure Julie in order to assault her, murder her, and then leave her body behind, just like he did Byron? But I feel like he would have gone to his parents' house if that was the case, like, acted like nothing happened. That's true. You know, like, yeah. oh, just here for the weekend, like, just I'm here supposed for the to be, you know, like, <laughs> you would think he would just, like, do a better job of covering it up, is that what you mean? And so yeah. just, like, yeah. Well, like, I'm saying if he, 
it was this mastermind, right? Like, mm. just go on about what your plans are, because you already texted her saying you were going to your parents' house. Not right. showing up, if you are the perpetrator, is suspicious. Exactly. You know? I know what you mean. Taking all of this into account, police made Sam the top person on their suspect list. <sighs> Interestingly enough, at the crime scene, there were no signs of a struggle. Nothing was out of place. The apartment was well-kept and maintained for a bachelor pad. A few empty beer cans were on the balcony table, but overall, this did not look like two drink, the two drank heavily, and then a struggle ensued after becoming intoxicated. There's no, like, ransacking of the place. No, nothing, huh. nothing was out of place. Police needed to find Sam in order to ask him what really happened that night. So police put out a be on the lookout or a bolo on Sam, given the description of his vehicle, and put that out to the media. Given his military background and his PTSD, police also included in the bulletin that Sam was likely armed and dangerous. Oh, my God. Which is like, uh, especially for Steve, he's like, I know my son. Yeah. Armed and dangerous. Uh, sad. Police also interviewed Sam's neighbor, the one talked about in that text message, Dan Wozniak. Hmm. Weird. Dan did admit that Sam was in his apartment the night previously, but there was also a third man with Sam. He couldn't remember the man's name, just that he had had, had a black hat on. Rachel, his wife, or fiancé, I'm sorry, soon-to-be wife, confirmed that her fiancé's story was true, that she also saw this man in a black hat. What? I'm sorry, if someone's coming into my home, I'm knowing your name. Well, I don't think he was, came into the home. I think Sam showed up to Dan's, and then when he left, he was with a guy in a black. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, uh, sorry. Meanwhile, Steve, Sam's father, began doing his own investigation, and while digging into Sam's bank statements, sees that Sam withdrew money the night that Julie was killed. Hmm. Strangely, though, the withdrawal happened about 20 minutes from Sam's place in Long Beach, not Costa Mesa. Steve finds a bank the bank's location and decides to make the drive himself in hopes of finding his son without immediately alerting police. Yeah. Again, they have this bolo out saying that he's armed and dangerous. If right. he calls the cops, who knows, right? Steve arrives at the ATM location and doesn't immediately notice anything at the time, but Steve does not go home. He posts up in the area and even rented a nearby hotel room in order to catch his son or some kind of information regarding the whereabouts of his son. The following day, a new notification pops up on Sam's banking information. Steve sees that Sam's card is being used at a local pizza place. Dumbass. Steve rushes to the card's location, but while circling the parking lot, he does not see Sam's car anywhere. Costa Mesa police had also been tracking Sam's bank information at this point and noticed that there were four total withdrawals from two separate ATMs since Sam's disappearance. Police retrieved footage from these ATMs and were shocked to find that it was not Sam withdrawing this money, hmm. but a young man with a skateboard no more than 16. What? Yeah. I was going to say, you don't say, but You don't what? say. It's that boy, <laughs> Dan Wozniak. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a 16-year-old with a skateboard. Okay, well, he obviously knows Dan. Simultaneously, as Steve is in the pizza place parking lot, that's hard to say, pizza place parking lot. Police, that's another one, Pizza Place parking lot, police descend on its location in hopes to catch the person who charged pizza to Sam's card. Huh. The Pizza Place notified police that it was not a dine-in, but a delivery. 
and they were able to provide the address to police. Oh shit! But you're even more dumb. Yeah, like, you're, you're even, even more dumb. Yeah, this leave is your I'm fucking staying. phone number and your yeah. name. Why <laughs> <laughs> Well, he has sixteen. So, with SWAT and helicopters in tow, police kicked down the residence door, only to find sixteen-year-old Wesley Frillick munching away at that freshly delivered pizza. Damn. That sucks. He's like, can I just eat my pizza? Bro, I just want to eat my pizza. Like, it just got here. I'm starving. (laughs) You want a slice? Wesley was taken to the ground, and the home was searched in an effort to locate Sam, but Wesley was home alone. What the fuck? When questioned about the card and why he was taking money out of this account, he claimed that it was his theater mentor, Dan Wozniak, that had instructed him to. Because remember, he mentored kids. Mm -hmm. He's such a great guy. Figured he knew Dan. Figured he knew Dan. Wesley went on to say that Dan told Wesley that Sam was in legal trouble and that Sam had given his debit card to Dan in order to withdraw money in order to pay a bail bondsman. Why wouldn't he just withdraw it himself? Right, exactly. But I think that Dan was like, oh, Sam's in jail or something. Okay, well, that's also dumb. It is. And he just trusted me, a neighbor. I've known him for a few months. Yeah, exactly. Well, the kid doesn't know that. The yeah, yeah, I know. The kid's <laughs> a kid. <laughs> Dan even provided him with false paperwork, proving that this was legit. Dan was like, oh, see, here's all the paperwork that Sam gave me. I am I refuse to believe that Dan went from, like, normal, like, out, like outlandish, like, center life of the party to, like, criminal mastermind. <laughs> like, I really just well, refuse to believe. he's not a mastermind. But that's... <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that, giving him false paperwork. Like, that's an, a lot of effort that's a to, lot like, of effort, make yourself though. look yeah. innocent. yeah. Well, he's obviously not a mastermind because he gets caught, but still. (laughs) Dan Wozniak was now the prime suspect in the murder of Julie. Police called Dan to casually ask him to come down to the station, but Dan was like, sorry, unfortunately, I'm at my bachelor party, so... That is such a funny reason to not go down to questioning. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to party. I'm trying to party. It's my bachelor party, so, yeah. (laughs) Police were able to track down where the bachelor party was being held, which was at a local sushi place, and police arrived to tell Dan that he had no other choice but to come with them. That is so funny. Oh my gosh, imagine that. Like, he's probably, like, wasted. (laughs) I don't know, freaking All of his friends and family, his brothers, his uncles, whatever, just be like, well, what do we do now? Do they keep partying without him? Honestly, I probably, I probably would. would. Yeah, I'd be like, bye. <laughs> bye. Sayonara. Sorry. <laughs> Good time. This is all on Dan. This is all on Sam. <laughs> yeah. Use the card, please. Use Thanks. the card, please. <laughs> Fuck. God, that's awful. Ugh. So he responds with, quote, I'll tell you everything. I'm sick of covering for Sam. End quote. Okay. I, that, if I didn't already hate this guy. Yeah. Once at the station, Dan claims that Sam came over that night, May 21st, to discuss Dan's financial troubles. Dan had told Sam previously that he was struggling to make ends meet, and with the wedding in seven days, he had no idea how he was going to pay for everything. Sam, being the good guy that he was, offered to withdraw money little by little from his own account and simply report his card lost or stolen. Why would he just give you this money? I don't understand. Well, yeah, why wouldn't he just give him the money? So, essentially, Dan was like, everyone wins in this scenario, right? After all, Sam had over $62,000 in his bank account, and he would help out Dan, just as, like, a favor. 
Dan went on to say that he was performing in a play that night, so on the way to the show, he stopped at an ATM and made the first withdrawal. Wrong. Because the kid did. Yeah. (laughs) Wrong. There's video footage. Wrong. He and Rachel were both performing that night. The two finished the show, went home, showered, then had sex, and went to bed. And he says it in the interview. He's like, then we had sex. It's like, are you trying to remind people that you have sex? Yeah. (laughs) Who the fuck cares? (laughs) Who cares? Yeah. Dan did say repeatedly that he had no idea where Sam went after Sam gave him his debit card that night. Detectives press Dan further, and his story begins to morph a little bit. Dan then comes out and says, All right, well, I did see Sam the next day, too. It was early in the morning, and he came by to tell me that he had done something bad, that there was a body in his apartment, and that he shot someone after he flew into a rage after using drugs. And you wouldn't have just led with that? No, he didn't lead with that. By the way, oh, I just remembered this one small detail. He told um, he's me a murderer. He killed someone. <laughs> like, what? How do you forget that? Ugh. So, two points. He did this to one, create the illusion that Sam had to be alive after the first withdrawal. Yeah. And that Sam was the one who killed Julie. Uh-huh. Dan went on to say that Sam threatened him if he were to talk. This is a direct quote, and I'm going to try to say it the way that he said it. Quote, I said, dude, I'm not one to judge you, but you fucking got me into this. And then he was all like, well, I know where you live. And I said, yeah, you do know where I live. And he's like, you wrap me out. I'm going to fucking kill you. And and, and better yet, I'm going to start with your wife. End quote. He's all doing this while he's like wringing his hands through his hair because he's like trying to come up with something. Yeah. He's like, oh shit. Like, no, now I have to phrase it like... In case I use the self-defense defense later, I'm going to say he threatened me now. Yeah, for sure. And then in case I want to go like a maniac again and kill my wife, then now I can blame it on Sam. My (laughs) wife. Dan then states that he gave Sam a ride to the mall. He's like, oh, you got to get out of here because you murdered someone. Let me take you to the mall. And it's like, if he just killed someone, why would he go to one of the more popular areas? And then if he just killed someone and then threatened you, why would you get in the car with him? Yeah, why would you just like, oh yeah, let me give you a ride, friend. <laughs> right. Thanks for the money. Yeah. Ugh. This is so silly. Like, it It's make silly. Sense. It's dumb. He's a bad liar. When Dan returns home, he said that he feared his wife would be suspicious of him if he revealed that he was the last person to see Sam alive. So Dan made up the story about the man in the black hat in order to keep his wife from suspecting him of any wrongdoing. You just said you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, he was like, well, but I don't want people to think I did something wrong. And if Sam's missing, I certainly don't want my wife to think I had anything to do with it. So let me just tell her that I saw Sam with the dude in a black hat. So he's like openly admitting that he's like making stories up to cover his ass. Why wouldn't he be doing it right now? (laughs) Exactly. So Dan is essentially admitting to police right here and now that he's lied this whole time. Yeah. Whether or not this is actually factual or not, he's straying away from his original story. For sure. Police, confident that Dan had something to do with Sam's disappearance and Julie's murder at this point, take a DNA sample. Knowing now that Dan's DNA might be found at the crime scene, Dan explains even further before being asked that he was in Sam's apartment that night in order to use the bathroom, but he never saw Julie that night. Let me just volunteer this information. Don't you love when they volunteer the information? They just explain it away. They try to. They try to, and it's like, but I didn't even ask you that. So, yeah. Yeah. At this point, Dan begins to raise his voice. 
He starts speaking with very direct answers, and it's almost like he's putting on a performance for the detectives in the room. He's like, I don't know what you want from me. I don't know what happened to Sam or Julie. Yeah, it's very traumatic. Wherefore art thou, Julie? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, starts reciting Hamlet. Cute. He begins to beg detectives, quote, I'll tell you anything you want. Just please get me to my wedding by Friday, end quote. That's what he's concerned about. Well, I mean, if he did all this, he's got to make it worth it. (laughs) He's got to make that wedding. Slowly, Dan begins to admit more and more. He admits to helping Sam move Julie's body in order to help him escape, which then makes him accessory after the fact. Yeah. So at this point, police tell him he's not free to go anywhere. More pressure and 14 hours into the interview, detectives eventually coax Dan into a confection. Confection. Confession. <laughs> they make him into, into a, a cupcake. <laughs> <laughs> they coax him into a confection oven. <laughs> it's terrible. Oh no. He says, quote, I'm crazy. I did it. I killed Julie and I killed Sam. End quote. So Dan. why didn't you start with that? I'm so, obviously no, well, like a yeah, exactly. He's gotta make it to his wedding. Yeah. He can't be locked up. Oh my god. Dan said that he had asked for Sam's help moving some stuff into his place, sorry, from his place to the theater, as Dan was due to perform there later that night. When Sam turned to pick something up, Dan pulled out a gun and shot Sam twice, killing him. He said that the motive for this was to collect the money that Sam had in his bank account. Yep. Dan then grabbed Sam's phone to text Julie, luring her into Sam's apartment. But first, Dan and his fiancée, Rachel, went to the theater in order to perform their play. In between this time? In between killing each and of them. did Rachel know? Okay, she did. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until two hours later that Dan was in his apartment texting Julie, asking her to come to Sam's apartment. When he saw Julie at Sam's front door, Dan walked outside to chat with her. He had had a key to Sam's place, and Dan said that he was too worried about Sam, as Sam had also texted him that he was going through family matters as well. Wow, how manipulative. Right? When the two got into the apartment, Dan shot her. Dan said that the sole motive for killing Julie was to frame Sam. Oh, okay. I thought it was like, she's going to call the police if she realizes he's missing, No, so I need to get rid of her too. As he's confessing, he's like, I don't know, I'm just crazy. I just, I needed a, I needed to cover up Sam. That's insane. Like, I hate to use that word, but it's like, again, this seems like all of a sudden he's like this crazed killer, like, yeah. in this, like, planning left and right. I think it's just that he feels that he's such a good actor and, like, he's so narcissistic that he believes that he's got to do something with this pressure, right? It's like, I mean, to me, it's no different than, like, Scott Peterson, Chris Watts, because he's got all this pressure to perform or be this person, and the pressure becomes too much, Mm -hmm. and he's narcissistic enough to believe that he can get away with a murder. Yeah. Not really know what he's doing. There's no real solid plan. There's kind of a plan, you know, but same thing with Chris Watts. There's kind of a plan. Yeah. But no real follow through. When detectives asked Daniel where Sam was, Daniel admitted that he 
dismembered Sam and scattered his body in a nature center along Long Beach. Holy shit. Most of Sam's body was recovered after Dan led them to the site, but not all of them. So my question is, like, where, this is kind of morbid, but, like, where did he dismember him? Where's all this evidence? Is it in Dan's apartment or, because it wasn't in Sam's apartment? I don't think that the details of that have ever been released. And I'm going to say that because I very much wanted to find the court case for this and I could not find anything. There's no, there's no transcripts anywhere. Huh. At least from what I can tell. And maybe like the statute hasn't been lifted yet when they can release those. But as far as I can tell, any article that I saw didn't say whether or not he dismembered him at the theater if you dismembered him at his apartment or Sam's apartment, but Sam's apartment looked fine. So. Yeah, I, th- I don't think it would have been that. That's interesting. Right. And I'm not sure why. I don't know if that's because... It wasn't important. Yeah. yeah or maybe it was at the theater and they're like, didn't want to have a bad name, you know? It's true. I don't know. They might. They might have buried that on purpose. Right. Daniel Wozniak would be charged for both the murder of Julie and Sam. He was convicted of both counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to death in 2016. Wow. He is currently incarcerated in California's medical facility due to an unspecified mental illness, due to an unspecified mental illness, but has also spent time in Salinas and San Quentin. Rachel Buffett, his fiance, would also be charged with accessory after the fact for lying to investigators about her knowledge of Daniel's whereabouts the night of the crime and for perpetrating the lie that the man had a, the man with the black hat yeah. was, mm-hmm. existed. She was sentenced to 32 months and was released in 2019. And in another strange turn of events, Daniel's own brother, Tim, would also be arrested for concealing the murder weapon and Sam's bloody clothing. Oh my god. He was sentenced to three years probation and mandatory drug rehab. Damn. He, like, reached out to his brother. He's like, yo, look, I need you to take this for me. I need you to me. take these things. God. But it's like you're dragging other people with you. Like, what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. Well, that's because he only cared about making his wedding. Exactly. You know, like, he didn't care about the lives of two people and, well, four people now, yeah. actually, because his wife and his brother now are implicated. I really think that Rachel probably knew more than that. I think maybe she even assisted him with some things because I'm pretty sure she's just as narcissistic as he is. Yeah. And I'm sure she wanted a nice, big, lavish wedding. Yeah. Or she probably just looked the other way, like, ignorance is bliss. You know, it's it's interesting how often that happens. Like, someone you love does something really, really bad, and you're like, it'll be fine. It'll <laughs> you be know, fine. like... I love them. It'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. Just won't say anything, you yeah. know. Well, that's the story of Dan Wozniak. That's crazy. I've never heard that story before, and the, the recency of it is baffling to me, because I have never heard anything like that. I, I thought the name sounded familiar, but... So what unspecified mental disorder do you think he might have had? I think that he definitely had a narcissistic personality disorder or something like that. Something that was a personality disorder with narcissistic tendencies. Yeah, it sounds like maybe a little bit of antisocial as well, because he Mm. was so calm about this whole thing. Just so ready to, like, end the lives of two people just to get what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And seemingly didn't have any feelings about it. And then tried to blame the victim, you know, make him out to be a murderer. And then just casually at his bachelor party was like, fine, yeah, tired of covering for Sam, let's go. You know, like, no emotion about it. Yeah, he was totally willing to just let Sam take the fall for it. Dang. But then it's almost like, like, when he was confessing in the interrogation room, he keeps saying, like, I'm crazy, I'm crazy. And he would, like, laugh. And I don't know if it's, like, maybe some hysteria that came on because of the anxiety he was feeling, 
But it was very much like he realized, I think, in that moment, he was able to kind of put that guard down and just confess. And again, I compared him to Chris Watts. Chris Watts similarly did something like that. He he lied and he lied and he lied. He was completely uh, willing to blame Shanann for killing the children. And then when it became too much, came too much, came too much, he kind of just shut down mm-hmm. and began to confess. Like and then he, to and confess. Then, and then it's almost like he never stopped confessing. Even yeah. after he was in jail, he was fine with giving, you know, FBI interviews detailing more and more of the crimes and i mean all the way down to like what the girls said and stuff yeah so i don't know i don't know if there's like a like you said antisocial. but is it is it now i'm getting the response that i've wanted and therefore i'm going to keep confessing i think so i think it might be well i think it might be like both antisocial, maybe narcissistic as well because it's like i'm i've gotten all this attention now that i'm part of this but i'm i'm a victim in it and now that I'm not getting that attention and I'm getting eyeballs looked at me and I'm slowly starting to confess, now I'm getting more attention because I'm confessing a little bit. So I'm going to give him a little bit at a time to keep relighting that candle. Yeah. And this giant confession is this big, you know, abundance of attention. Yeah. It's got to be like the ultimate, like, oh my God, yes, they're they're really paying attention it's to me high. now. You know, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I definitely think that's what Dan was going through when yeah. he started confession- confessing. Dang. Well, that was a really good episode. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that. Yeah. You got anything else? That's it. All right. Well, we will see you guys on Monday with another mental breakdown. Go ahead and get your tickets for the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival and be on the lookout for another case as well next week. Yeah. All right. right. Love you. Love you. Bye. You're probably already aware that craft beers have exploded in popularity over the past decade. But what you might not know is that there are thousands of awesome craft beers being produced by these new microbreweries every day. With Craft Beer Club, each order will showcase two breweries from different regions in the U.S. and includes four beer styles with a brand new box with each shipment. You will also receive publications that detail the history about the featured breweries, tasting notes, pairing options, and maybe even a little trivia. Click on our link in the show notes and receive an exclusive offer today with Craft Beer Club.